This episode is sponsored by The Juice, which is the best place to get curated resources to help grow your sales or marketing career. In these ad spots, we're profiling creators from B2B that we admire and look up to and learn from, asking them a very important question. What does it mean to be a modern marketer? Today's answer comes from Caitlin Burgoyne, who is the CEO and lead trainer at Customer Camp and, for my money, one of the best at understanding buyer psychology. What makes a modern day marketer? That's a hard question because while marketing has changed rapidly, the tools we use, the technology, the channels, the stuff that actually matters, it doesn't change fast and that's people. The challenge and the opportunity for marketers, it's always been about deeply understanding people, the customer and then being able to tell the customer's story in a way that actually rallies our team behind a vision and earns their trust. Because too many great marketing ideas never come to life because the marketing team can't guarantee results. That's why modern day marketers, they've got to know how to learn from buyers, how to measure what matters, but also how to fight for buy-in to invest in the less measurable stuff that can make a huge impact. It's not easy but it's the only way to win today. Check your show notes to find some of Caitlin's best thinking found right on her creator page on The Juice and follow her on Twitter and make sure to visit thejuicehq.com to sign up for free. Here's something you didn't know about me. I have invented not one, but two metrics that makers and marketers can use to measure the success of their creative work. Now, of course, Nobody actually uses them. Uh, And in fact, until today, I've never shared the second one publicly. It is something I use privately. And aside from a short blog post describing the first one, I've mostly kept both of them to myself. But this is our final mini-series episode. Our mini-series called Mini-Series, where we explored tiny pockets of creativity, the hidden or small types of creation that lead to big emotional responses. And so given the finale, it's only fitting that I finally talk about these two metrics publicly because they're meant to measure big emotional responses. And since I started my work in marketing and still occupy the business genre, whenever I talk about metrics, I of course have to use acronyms. So these two metrics are URR and CPP. URR stands for Unsolicited Response Rate. Beyond the downloads, the views, the likes, do people respond viscerally to your work? Did they tell you how much it meant to them or what you made them think about in their own lives? Did they build on your ideas and encourage others to explore your projects? Did they respond? And was it unsolicited? No incentive was offered, no prize, hell, no prompt was given. None of that algorithm gaming crap that you see on YouTube or LinkedIn. But what do you think? Drop a comment if you... Nope. Unsolicited. Did you resonate so deeply that others felt compelled to respond? Unsolicited response rate. URR. That's the first of two metrics that I've invented. And the second one, CPP, that one I like even more because it's not about your audience. It's about you and your role in the work. And few hidden mini pockets of my work lead to an increase in CPP, quite like the type of work that we explore today.
It's microscopic, but it matters. Keep, 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 keep it going. It's unthinkable. Creators who break from convention to resonate more deeply. I'm Jay Akunzo. Welcome to our fourth and final mini-series episode. We started this mini-series trying to challenge one very common perception, one myth about doing great creative work. That to make something considered creative, you have to do something big. Creative doesn't mean big. And creativity doesn't require any single big moment of genius or insight or innovation. Whether you're writing a tweet or the next great novel, building a prototype or a global company, this work is iterative. It's a slog. So any project or business is just the sum total of lots and lots of little choices, any one of which any of us could make. The muse is an excuse. Resources aren't reliable. The magic unfolds in the minutia. So to explore and I hope prove that point, we've profiled three different types of creative work that often unfold in tiny fashion. Whenever you encounter them, it doesn't take you long to interact with this stuff, but they still yield big emotional responses. The first was copywriting with writer and rebellious marketing thinker Margot Aaron. The second was illustration of the Instagrammable variety with illustrator and author Haley Weaver, who's better known publicly as Haley Drew This. And in our previous episode, joke writing with Matt Bouchelle, who's written jokes and songs for Netflix and The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Today, sound design. I score every episode of Unthinkable with music, and I create any of the sound design you might hear. I find the sound effects, I interweave them into the voices or in standalone moments. I'm doing all that experiential editing that you may have heard before and I hope enjoyed. And that's the part of creating this show that increases the CPP that I measure, that second metric that I invented. It happens when the timing of the music lines up just right with the words that somebody says, or the inspiring swell begins at the right time as my voiceover when I'm trying to make a, a punchy point. Or the pause or the different sound effects that I've been trying, layering in six, seven, 12 different little noises on top of each other to create a moment. When all that just snaps into place, it's like lightning to the chest and I cackle. <laughs> I'm alone, but I just can't resist doing it. When I hear the work just work after toiling away or laboring at it, or the vision in my head somehow, impossibly, matches the reality of what I'm listening to. I laugh out loud like a crazy person. I cackle. And although you don't know it, my very best episode edits contained lots of cackles. There seems to be a direct connection between my cackling and you saying to me that you loved the story I just told. So why not make that a way that I evaluate my success? Call it cackles per project. CPP. <laughs> when we pursue work that lights us up more, if we pull the threads that appear brightest to us, it will lead somewhere special for the audience. We'll end up making what matters. And then we can validate how deeply we resonated closing the loop by looking at how others respond. CPP leading to URR. Because the more I cackle behind the scenes, the more you tend to respond without me having to ask. The process resonated with me, so the product resonates with you. 
I'm a very important busyness professional. I gotta have my metrics, and I do. They're just not like most metrics. As we come to the final episode of the series, again, few things increase my CPP, like my P's that contain a lot of sound and music in the edits. And few people are more masterful at the craft or speak to it more beautifully than James T. Green. James is an artist, sound designer, and founder of the creative studio Molten Heart. They've worked with and have been featured by 99% Invisible, BBC Radio, The Met, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, and Pop-Up Magazine, just to name a few. In 2021, James created a seven-minute personal audio story, of course with beautiful sound design and music. It was called PMHX, and it was about the heart monitor they had implanted in their chest. And here are the opening moments of that piece. In 2018, I was sent home from the hospital with a box. The packaging was reminiscent of a new tech gadget. A toy for a 30-year-old. I joked to friends that I was getting an upgrade. Hard OS. I plug it in and it begins its search. Pinging around the room looking for its hardware tether. It connects to a tiny rod implanted near my heart. From there, I'm permanently chained to Brooklyn's 3G network with the sole purpose of transmitting the rhythms of my heart to a cardiologist miles away. Every morning I wake up and leave the bed, but still sense the tether throughout the house. I prepare my body for a day of screen-based interactions, a three-step process for my face. Heat the skin and remove the dirt, smooth the skin with acids, Apply vitamin solution to protect the skin. The steps mimic the making of a computer chip. Silicon begins from silica sand. Heat the silica and remove the oxygen. Smooth the silicon with acids. Apply an oxide layer to protect patterns built in the chip's design. Thanks to my heart implant, I've achieved the state that is passively tossed around group chats and Slack threads. I'm going offline for the day. My body just forced quit. I don't have the bandwidth. The piece went on to win the award for Best Documentary Short at the Third Coast International Audio Festival. As I mentioned, I do all the experiential editing you hear on Unthinkable, but just to help you place James in relation to the things you hear on this show... Comparing my ability to James would be like comparing my ability to play basketball to LeBron James. Somewhere, James T. Green is hearing this and violently shaking their head. And I see you, James, but I can also hear you, which means my compliment stands. James thinks so deeply about their work and this craft, they even created some terminology to describe it. My absolute favorite is Muxture, M-U-X. T-U-R-E. Muxture. So muxture is um, what I refer to as the structure that music and um, sound can create. And I, I came up with the word uh, as a portmanteau of um, mux, which is the um, script abbreviation for music yeah. um, and, and structure and also texture. When you say texture in reference to sound and music, what does that mean? 
I'm thinking about like when you close your eyes and you can envision sort of the colors of sound, what a sound can feel like, what a sound can taste like, kind of thinking about the other parts of sound that are more than just what you hear. Yeah. So, for example, when I think about the texture of a sound, I think of like a, um, a high-pitched squeal, for instance. <laughs> that texture feels very rough. It feels very sharp. It feels... Right like yellow in a way if if you think of like a gentle like pad like running your fingers across silk well i just gave gave it away <laughs> the silk being the texture but um you think of something being um like like a like a warm synth pad it can be chocolatey it can be very dark brown or dark blues like that's what i'm saying when i'm thinking about the texture of sound yeah, it seems to be, I've heard you use the word scaffolding, mm-hmm. as in reference to, you know, the scaffolding to a story, the scaffolding to an interview that music and sound can provide. When I think scaffolding, I think of like the, it's propping something up in a way. Yeah. Is that an accurate assessment of like what sound music can do to a story in your mind or? Definitely. I mean, sound and music particularly can take someone's words and kind of almost add in like a layer of of emotion along with it a good way to think about it is like if you're watching like a really well scored horror movie and if you notice like very rarely with the exception of a couple pieces of silence there's always these sort of hums of like very low drones that are you know tapping into that like inner part of ourselves but at the same time, it's propping up either maybe the small bits of dialogue that are in that moment or, like, the no dialogue at all. Like, a way I've been talking about it with friends is, like, it's almost like an AR experience that you're, like, filtering in over the world that sound can provide that almost gives clues to, like, the emotional state that maybe a character or someone in the story cannot express. I was watching something, who knows what. Uh, I have two little kids, so I have also no memory comes with that as the package deal. But we were watching something on TV, my wife and I. And I remember watching, because I make podcasts, I was trying to pay more attention to, well, how is this show scored? And how does, what does that do to my feelings as I watch it? And I remember the scene was very simple. There was somebody with malintent in someone's home, and the person driving up to the home who lived there did not know this person awaited them inside. And so the music was really ominous because you, the viewer, knew something was about to go down. It wasn't going to be pleasant. And the music accentuated that and leaned into it and sort of agitated your stress. And I remember seeing this shot and it was just like a white house up on a hill with a car driving up the driveway. And I was like, you could set this to like the the cliche podcast music of like a xylophone transition or something. Yep. <laughs> and it'd be yep. a completely different story, a completely different moment. And it would be like, also, if you, had, if you had seen someone villainous walk in the house and then heard that, there'd be this, like, really strange, like, cognitive dissonance happening of, like, why is that the music? Like, why am I feeling this? And so that, right. to me, is so hidden from view. But once you spot it, it's, it's, it's everywhere. <laughs> it almost can act as, like, spoiler sometimes, which is, like, yeah. very much kind of the sign, I think, so to speak, of, like, maybe it 
getting it wrong in a way like it like it, it's almost like you don't want to be too heavy-handed about it because right. then you're you're almost kind of like you're not trusting the listener or the viewer in in this case that they're going to get what you're putting down right right it's almost like how close to the line of dun 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 are you actually getting <laughs> maybe maybe avoid that maybe maybe run a little bit further from that line right right yeah and it's it's all based in taste it really yeah. is someone is unacquainted with what you do what would you say is the role of sound design for an audio experience you're sort of engaging the imagination of a listener um, through these cues so like if you think about it like a dish right like if you think of the narration as being like the slab of meat (laughs) right Um, that you're about to grill sound design is providing all the um, all the seasonings that go along with the meat um, the temperature, how long are you cooking it? it? It sort of brings up the best inside of that like cut of meat, so to speak. Yeah, totally. I'm Italian. So if you use a food analogy and I'm an English major, so analogy plus food is you're speaking my language. Perfect. Great, yeah. great, great. I'm, I'm Midwestern, so I will probably just speak in either casserole or just grilled meat dishes. Yeah. <laughs> when thinking about sound design, at the end of the day, you're in, you are in service of the story and right. anything that does, in fact, like help to get like those portions of the story across in either like propping up emotion or giving a wink and a nod to a listener um, to even helping them to envision the world, I would say is the job of the sound designer. Continuing the food analogy, I do find that. So I came out of the marketing world. So a lot of what I do, my topical area is business, career topics. It's, I, I like that world. I want to bring better stories to it because a lot of it is just not there and we deserve it. We spend so much time with work and there's so much meaning you can have if you like your work. I think we need better workplace storytelling. So that's kind of my, my bent and my bias. But coming from that world, when I see some folks adopting, let's say they have a podcast and it's a basic interview show or chat cast or monologue and they're like, we're going to enhance the production value. We'll add some sound and some music. Continuing your analogy, it's the equivalent of like a steak that A is questionably cooked to begin with and b now you're just pouring steak sauce just slathering it on top (laughs) to sort of say look flavor and it's it's not very subtle it's not complimentary it's like to show you the the listener to prove to you we have production value i need to like beat you over the head with sound and i am guilty of this sometimes too and you know a a week where i'm stressed and i'm like we do some sound i i own that part of unthinkable and and it's like listening back i'm like that was crude that was not necessary that was gratuitous and it's the it seems to me like it's such a fine line to walk down um when you work with other folks how do you explain to them like hey this might tip too far not make sense it's almost like being a graphic designer and a client goes just make the logo pop or have fun with it you have to kind of explain the nuance to folks that lack the language how do you navigate those kinds of conversations so it's funny, before I got into audio, I used to be a graphic designer. There you go. So, so I think I end up using a lot of like graphic design principles to my sound design practice, mm-hmm. whether it is like pretty much telling someone. Like a good example is like a show that I'm working on right now is a his- history show. Um, and it's, telling, um, it's called Seizing Freedom, and it's telling the stories of black liberation, like post uh, the reconstruction period 
And a thing that is very easy to do with a history-based show is to just score it with historically accurate music. I'm sensing there's some some types of history shows where you're going to be heavy on the harpsichord. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, just like a lot of harpsichord, like those, those, those type of things. <laughs> but, but doing something in the thing that I'm like trying to do with the show is to use like modern instrumentation, but then deploying them in a way that like ends up, you know, capturing the emotion. It's like sometimes like you really hate to say it, but like you don't have to you do so much in the sound design department, especially if like the story is so good. Like just like you don't have to drizzle a steak with steak sauce. You can just like some salt, some pepper, maybe some paprika um, enough to make it work. Um, so in that show particularly, there's a lot of instances where maybe there is like a harpsichord in the background, but it is being bent like a modern synth and then warped into a pad to like portray an emotion. What does that mean? Warped into a pad? Oh, so like, um, so I can take like a modern instrument, stretch it in sound, and then um, essentially make it into like, like essentially make it make like a blanket of sound, so mm. to speak. This is Seizing Freedom. I'm your host, Dr. Kadata Williams. Last season, we showed how African-Americans seized freedom during the Civil War and Reconstruction and how their self-regard. Um, so, so that way you can lend itself to like, oh, this is, ca- this is capturing the sound of something that feels of the era, but it doesn't feel very one-to-one. Like, it kind of reminds me a lot of like, I also will probably speak in style metaphors because I really like fashion. Cool. And it's kind of like when someone is dressing up for Halloween, so they're overdoing sort of the costuming of something versus someone who like has personal style for themselves. Mm. I love that. That's a great analogy. I appreciate these analogies too because I think, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm someone who makes podcasts and even some of this is still elusive to me. So for my listener, I really appreciate that. You have written for the blog Transom, uh, transom.org, which is the wonderful audio storytelling workshop. And in the piece, you wrote something that I found really beautiful. And so I was just wondering if I read it back to you, if you could explain it to us in a little more detail. Audio stories are tools of escape by design. They evoke a single sense while allowing your other senses to remain present in their current environment. <laughs> wow, I I was like, wow, I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I was really thinking about there is that like it's really beautiful that sound does allow other senses to sort of bleed into our consciousness. And if you play those cards right, you can kind of manipulates the wrong word but like you can sort of use that to your advantage um, based upon like how you utilize sound so like if you know that some narration is about to be a tearjerker then you know that you might not want to make a sound that like evokes that feeling even further because you don't want to bring 
that person into like a deep depressive state. Right. So or they're going to get it on their own through the voices and the tone of those without, you know, because voices have the musicality that can carry that tone. And so you might not want to. It's the, that's the steak sauce coming through a little bit. Too right. Much. Right. So it's like you might want to have something that sort of like is neutral enough that fills the space. So that way, like maybe it, it, you won't have the listener have their intrusive thoughts sort of plug in. But something that's just enough, it's like kind of like having the walls painted a nice like slate gray in a doctor's office versus having it be like a bold color. Like I think like the most beautiful thing about having those other senses available is that you know that the person is going to be like dreaming up and and, like imagining something on the other end. Hey, just to jump in here, let me let me just run an experiment with you, the listener. The the thing that James is talking about is really subtle but important. Sometimes the voices are enough to let the moment land because of the way the voices sounded, because of the musicality and tone of the voices. Whereas other times it might be appropriate to add a music bed underneath it or, you know, create that kind of soundscape to enhance the feelings that you're already feeling. And really the difference between those two moments, with or without music or with or without sound design, is up to you. It's a lot of trial and error to, to, to see if it works. It's like trying on clothing. You have a good idea when you see it on the rack, but then you have to try it on for size just to confirm. And you might go through several attempts, trying things on and removing them over and over again until you go, okay, this, this just feels right. I'll go with this. So let's say I did land a story in a rather somber or emotional place. Sometimes the music can help. Other times it might not. Here's two endings I might give you of a story of mine where one contains the music and one doesn't, and you decide which one you like better. Here we go. And after seeing that, I realized this is not the work that I aspire to do. It's not how I want to spend my finite time here on Earth. And so the very next day, I quit. Okay, and here is the version with the music. And after seeing that, I realized... This is not the work that I aspire to do. It's not how I want to spend my finite time here on Earth. And so the very next day, I quit. And just for fun here, here's one more edit where I use something more neutral. And after seeing that, I realized This is not the work that I aspire to do. It's not how I want to spend my finite time here on Earth. And so the very next day, I quit. Which did you prefer? It might be subjective. And so as a creator, it's on you to determine in everything, not just sound design, but in all these mini pockets of our work, what makes sense to try and what does not. And the only way to figure it out is to try a lot of stuff. There is no one right way. So stop looking for it. All right. Back to my conversation with James. So it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, that your sound is essentially like an imagination engine. And this person is going to be distracted no matter what. So it's either like you have to kind of embrace that or you have to just kind of like 
make something that will snap their focus versus like a visual thing where it's like you have someone's eyes, you have someone's ears, you know, eating food is probably like one of the most like sense intensive activities and listening to sound. Is it? (laughs) I can't help but go to a big part of my work has been for years public speaking. And so when I started speaking, and this happens to a lot of folks that as I've learned over the years, you stuff every space full of words. You're just almost like a mile a minute, you're just talking. And the really great speakers who grip you and inspire you and help you see the world a certain way, they will use silence, they will use movement, they'll use these things that is part of the performance. And that's the only word I can use is performance or performance technique, but I wish there was something a little broader that could catch all of the arts and describe this subtlety, this nuance, where like in speaking, it's the pauses, the movements, the way you use your eyebrows. In podcasting, in audio, it's the transition um, sounds and music and, and the music beds and just everything about sound design. It's like these little tiny things that are everywhere that a professional might be able to say, look, I'm wielding that proactively. Use the word manipulation. And I think production is in many ways manipulating the audience. Now you're trying to do it respectfully of course you're trying to do it because you think you'll enjoy this more you'll learn better something good will happen but you know hey if i do this here you'll feel x and so that is a little bit manipulative but again respectfully so i hope or ideally there's got to be this word we god we're not going to come up with it maybe or maybe you know (laughs) one where it's like the catch-all for all these little subtleties in the performance arts that creates the experience but is not like the talk track it's not the steak it's everything around it mm-hmm. the, maybe maybe we just call it the spice i don't know i mean maybe it's presence presence that's interesting why why did you go there because it's like it, it kind of reminds me of like why what draws you about a person right like i think about meeting someone like a new friend at a party or like you know at a bar or something and it's not only like what they say but it's kind of like the aura that they yeah. bring and I think, yeah, sound has a presence in a way. Like, if you think about, like, how a track comes in or exits when certain elements come in, when certain elements exit, sort of like what what element is on stage at what point. Like, there's beautiful things you can do with sound where... You can kind of act like like spotlights. Like Mm -hmm. a thing that I really enjoy in sound design is when the sound design is actually interacting with the narration where like certain beats kind of hit along with certain points. Um, But they do so in like such a subtle way, not necessarily like you're adding a sparkle ding when someone says something very interesting, but like... Right, like I I learned three things. Ding, thing one, ding, that's a little, you know, and that could work in certain ways, I'm sure, but like that's that's not what you're talking about here. Right, right. That's definitely more on like the camp side. (laughs) Yeah, it's a wink and a Um, nod to the audience of like, look, sound design. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like, it reminds me of just like, like this is why I I just love music, particularly like music does this so well where like you know arrangements are in are in concert with the lyric right and i think that that is something that should be explored within sound design as well um when we're thinking about that for podcasts or any other things like your narration is your lyric and the sound design and the music should kind of act as such and it's like the the arrangement underneath it yeah the the thing again, I try my hand at it. I think I'm I'm above average, but I have miles and miles to go being 
great at this stuff, but because I'm owning all the music and sound for Unthinkable, you know, one of the things I've learned I love most and I kind of like, I'm cackling by myself in the office. Like my dog looks at me and is like, you know, you're an idiot, right, Jay? Like, cause I'm alone, like laughing hysterically at the dramatic crescendo of a song that I've found that's like fair use. And I can, you know, and, and it, the crescendo matches, you know, the point I was trying to make or the point that the guest made. And it just like comes together in this beautiful way. Um, or there's a pivot in the action or the point or the tone and you can kind of rough cut a track so that the listener if they were washing their dishes and zoning out snaps back to active listening right like those moments mm -hmm. when you play them back i'm like oh that's amazing that's so great right and then right. you know again yeah. my dog i need a better assistant because he thinks i'm an idiot <laughs> that's the stuff i love those tiny little again the mini series that we're doing here those tiny little hidden things i think really does enhance how deeply an experience resonates without necessarily the person on the receiving end identifying those things. Do you have your own version of like the things that cause you to cackle in your work? There was a moment in, um, I will say I was really proud of myself <laughs> here. Um, and it was for that Seizing Freedom uh, project. There's a story about some dolls and basically like there were these dolls that were being created that were for um, particularly black dolls. With the church's blessing, black doll usage spread quickly. And in one of the lines, it was stating to like, you know, basically say like, No toy you can buy for a small colored girl will instill more of self-respect in her unconsciously than a colored doll. Burn up the others. Burn up the other dolls. And in the scoring, because it was such a way, it was such a funny delivery of how that line was made. And it was almost unexpected. So like the way that I built the track underneath it, it was kind of plunky, it was kind of playful because I wanted to evoke something that evoked like childlike play. Mm. But then I wanted a bit of sinisterness in sure. it. Um, so I found a shaker. No toy you can buy for a small colored girl will instill more of self-respect in her unconsciously than a colored doll. Burn up the others. But then once we got to the line, burn up the others, I like added a reverse onto that shaker so then the shaker kind of sounded like a match being being lit. Mm. And it was just a little subtle thing that only happened once because it was like burn, burn up, up the, the others up. and then you hear the and then a little hint of a beat. In 1912. To give that sort of that sort of audible joke room to breathe. Yes. And then I brought in the rest of the narration. The National Negro Doll Company stopped shipping dolls from Germany. So there's like little things like that where it's like, it probably took like more time to build that little audio <laughs> joke, but it, it provides this sort of like what I call integrated listening experience yeah. to the thing where it feels like, oh, this is sound design that is tailor made for the project and not something that's just kind of slapped together at the end. If you could walk me through some of the basics or even a real project where how something becomes that integrated like when you're working with somebody else in collaboration and it's not just your own project how does that project unfold till until you get to the point where you're like i have a clear vision for what this is going to be i'm actually in the weeds manipulating this audio and manipulating this sound to have that final integrated experience walk me through what like a typical project might be or if you have one in mind that'd be great too yeah so um a project that's that's really near and dear to my heart it's on audible right now and it's called Finding Tamika. 
And this is an example of something that felt like a completely integrated experience. And this is something that was a complete team effort. I founded a, an audio production company called Molten Heart. Um, and within it, we have like myself, sound designer, um, our supervising sound editor, sorry, Michelle Macklem, um, our composer, Chad Corey, and Adrian Lilly, who's our mix engineer. And this was like an example of something. Um, so I was the executive producer for Molten Heart side. And this was a, an example of something where this entire 10 part project had to be a completely integrated experience. Tamika. How did you meet Tamika Houston? When's the first time you met her? Who was Tamika Houston? She was a star with savior ambitions. She was a 24-year-old black girl. She was human. Her dad said in front of the detectives, they've been calling me all day telling me you're going to kill my daughter. As a black female, we have to be aware and cautious of who we invite in our lives. The black girl doesn't have to go missing for us not to see her. From executive producers Kevin Hart and Charlemagne the God, SBH Productions, Color Farm Media, and Molten Heart. I'm Erica Alexander. This is Finding Tamika. Available now on Audible. A little bit of backstory. So Finding Tamika is about uh, Tamika Houston, um, who was a young black woman who was um, reported missing. I believe this happened in, tw- uh, in 2004. Um, and sadly, she didn't get the news coverage that she deserved because there were a lot of other missing white women in the news. What we did with this project is that like, we wanted to create something that was like a neo-noir-styled treatment to something that is usually given like the true crime treatment. What that meant was like, when I was initially tapped into the project, like Molten Heart, I sent over a project brief where I had the host and the other production companies that were a part of it to say like, hey, what music do you listen to that you feel would be representative of this project? Mm. If you had to describe this project as three different instruments, what would it be? How would you describe this project as a color? Like thinking about things from like various degrees outside of sound because sound is so difficult to describe to people. So I found, you know, speaking in metaphor, (laughs) as I'm doing a lot today, Speaking in metaphor, finding ways to make sound visual for people ends up being a very, very helpful thing when you're working with clients. Um, So after we did that project brief, then we had another meeting where we essentially talked about um, these things and these references. We didn't do it this time around, but usually what we do is we also set around a playlist of sounds based upon like music and such that kind of evokes like the project just to make sure that we're all sort of speaking the same sonic language and then from there we we wrote the script and we got the tape we got all the tape and all the right spots the script and all the right spots and my job as the executive producer was writing in all the sound design cues as sort of notes in between the margins so I'm writing them like almost like a full-on like kind of screenplay style descriptors so Seen in blue undertones, the sound of the police car sound muffled underneath water. 
should evoke a feeling of dread, but also this feeling of hopefulness. And then shout out to Michelle, who is our sound designer, like completely was able to just speak that language and be like, okay, I know what you're saying when you said this thing should sound crystallized. Incredible. That's such a craft. Yeah, it's an incredible craft. And then basically from there, it's just like, like the edit process. So we're just playing those things back and forth with um, the other production partners and we're tailoring it to see like that we're all on the right page. But I found that a lot of the process with sound design is so helpful in the pre-production stage. Mm. So sending around that initial questionnaire, so to speak, to just make sure that we're all speaking the same sonic language. Because if you say, I want something that feels ominous, but you speak in rhythm and blues and rock. And when I hear ominous, I might think of cold synthesizers. We're speaking different languages. So it's like good to get those things sort of buttoned up at the get-go, you know? How did you get into this field? What, what was, where did this begin? <laughs> um, so, so I have an arts background. So I studied both conceptual art and graphic design. And I was working at, um, at a newspaper, like as an in-house designer. And I was literally feeling like so much burnout. I was like, I am really overwhelmed. I just got like hospitalized from from like literal overwork and I knew that I needed to get out. So my partner, now my wife, she was like, you know, get on get on my health insurance. Let's like let's just go about and do this. So I quit. And he started to pick up a few freelance design clients here and there, one of which was the local public radio station in Chicago. From there, James decided to scratch a new creative itch that he also shared with his friend Cher, making a podcast. Together, they did 100 episodes of a show that they called Open Ended, which they built entirely from scratch. And basically, those 100 episodes documented <laughs> us learning how to like be audio storytellers. I think it's important for us to really sit with this part of the story. James and Cher did a hundred episodes. When someone talks about their career success or their career journey, so much of these stops along the way, these stepping stones, are rushed past quickly. But in the story of James, this stepping stone was a giant boulder that they decided to scale. A hundred episodes. We have to start giving these moments their due as workplace storytellers. And because they're usually rushed past in a career success story, of course, you get frustrated when you return to your own work and then compare yourself to others like James, because you're on step seven and they're on step 700. But 500 of those steps were just a throwaway line in a story you heard about them. But to accurately portray someone's success, you have to understand they're not actually throwaway lines. They're entire chapters. So James and Cher did a hundred episodes of their show. And the more they did, the more they started to hear something from others. All these people in the Chicago area are like asking us like, how do, you know, how do we do what you're doing? Right. So then we were like, we should start a network or we should like 
you know, do some sort of Skillshare thing because it's like the Chicago way you, you learn and then you teach everyone else. And we wanted to see other, you know, black, brown, queer, femme folks in the industry. So, you know, we, we lost the network. We got like a lot of good buzz from it. We had some shows that got picked up by other networks, which was really great. That's an interesting, because I think people listening who might be podcasters would go, yeah, but how does that happen? Like, is it just so good someone notices you? You know, in researching for this, I'm seeing amazing shows. I'm hearing amazing shows and pieces you're doing. Lots of side project and own stuff. I'm also seeing names like Roman Mars and Anna Sale pop up. And so people go, right. how do you break through that, that ceiling? Because I can do my own stuff until I'm blue in the face, but you seem to be thriving, James. <laughs> That's the perception, right? Yeah, I guess that's the per- I guess that's the perception. I I feel like with w- with at least those shows, like the ones that got like picked up, they were so niche and they like served like the people that really loved them and they had huge and they had fan bases that like really loved them. And I think it was just like you hate to say it, but just like a mixture of just like this person happened to know this person who who owned a podcast network or whatever and like or this person have to know this person that knew this person at this company. And like, literally that's what happened that like got me from sort of into my first like podcast job, like quote unquote. Do you have an example of one niche podcast just to place it in people's minds? Like what? what Oh yeah. So like uh, Roboism for instance, which is, um, which was like a podcast about the intersection of robots and feminism, which was like, so so narrow narrow right. narrow but people love that show <laughs> what did that explore how did i don't know how to like give I me mean, what, what are the episodes about they would look at like you know they would break down a movie like ex machina for instance ah, i think that was okay, the pilot okay. and i remember that one and that one was really really fun that's awesome <laughs> there really is a podcast about every single possible niche it's it really it's is wonderful but yeah and then like to finish the story like I randomly got an email one day from MTV that was like, hey, we want to move you to either New York or Los Angeles because we're, you know, starting a podcast network and we really want, you know, we really want you to like help make it. They had like found out about my work just due to like someone who I randomly met from like a trip to New York at like, I I kid you not. It was a noise show and a reading in in a warehouse in Bushwick, <laughs> and it was like the most like the most like oddest slash stereotypical thing that you could go to in in Brooklyn, and and yeah, they recommended me, and I was really grateful, and and yeah, and just from there, just like a series of just like hopping from place to place, and here we are <laughs> talking to you. I love that. I love that. And it does, you know, you can portray it as it's total happenstance. I don't know how it happened, but you were putting yourself out there and working on your craft a ton. I mean, you weren't like some people who say, how do you break free? How do I get my big break? The first thing you got to look at is think about stand-up comedy. That's like the way it happens so often. It's are you going on stages all the time in your city? Are you doing that work? Are you producing lots of shows or volunteering on other people's shows? Like, are you actually building a body of work before someone says, will you come do that for us? You know, it's, it's sort of the willingness not to wait for permission, which in and of itself, I mean, I could not be more privileged as a human being. I'm white, straight male born when I was born to wonderful parents in the Northeast of the United States. I, I'm saying it's easy. It's not yeah. to just ship work for fun. I'm very privileged. I can do yeah. that. 
but it does kind of start with like how do you build a body of work that opens up new possibilities for yourself both skill wise and network wise yeah you know for for people who like can't so like i am you know non-binary but at the same time i'm masculine presenting so people clock me as a as a guy and i know that that has like led to all a lot of these doors being opened but at the same time like i i i i there was a lot of a lot of trying things out loud <laughs> so to speak so James on the show and in my newsletter I'm exploring this one concept of resonance and when you do this like if you're if I'm going to write the book on creative resonance someday you start to do weird things or things that seem kind of silly like look at the definition of the word or look at the sciences and see what we can learn and borrow here in our world of work and uh, and one of the things that I uncovered looking at the sciences is that when one system or sound or audio wavelength appropriate to this conversation, but when one system matches the natural frequency of another, it amplifies that second system. So you think of like pushing somebody on a swing. If you match the natural frequency or cadence of the person swinging, you will amplify them. So in the sciences, resonance is about essentially alignment and then an energy transfer that occurs. So I've aligned with that other system's frequency and I can now add energy to it and amplify it. And it, back in our world, it kind of makes sense. Like it's a very direct line to draw from that idea to say writing something or speaking something because you speak a language that others understand and align with. They get on board with your ideas, your belief system, your emotions, what have you. They get on board with the words you're speaking or writing or saying into a camera or microphone. So you're aligned with them and thus your ideas amplify them. They go, oh my gosh, this, I love this, I want to interact with this, I want to share this, subscribe to this, buy this, whatever. So this all makes sense. The definition from the sciences, the way we can port it over to the creative world, it makes sense in all the stories that I've told so far on this journey, because everyone I've profiled so far, everyone I've talked to, they trade in words. You know, they're writing something or saying something, regardless of medium. I wonder though, how does this idea of alignment with other people so that you resonate with them work when you trade not in words but in sound i definitely think you can do that through sound and okay. music and so like a way that i think about this is like you're you're putting out all these little signals every single day whether it's like how you dress whether it's like how you speak in hopes and maybe this is just me but just maybe in hopes that like it resonates with someone else and maybe someone else kind of like feels a sense of camaraderie you know what i mean sure and yeah it's like you're doing that but just even subtler with with sound and music how i might like bend a certain drum and it like very much evokes like a trap music drum I'm giving you a little hint that like this is uh, like something that I really really enjoy or I may do something that is that is very queer like keeping you know mic noise in you know what I mean or keeping in breaths and it's like kind of those little nudges there it's like there's all these little things that you're giving people in hopes that like maybe they know the secret language too that you're trying to speak to them delivering that thing especially for you.
We've come a long way across our four mini-series episodes, from writing copy that moves people to act, to sketching illustrations that help others feel seen in their toughest moments. From singing minute-long parodies and even writing those parodies for movie stars, to the sounds and music that help your favorite stories shine. Creative doesn't mean big. To resonate deeper does not require any of us to spend more or shout louder. In the hidden pockets of the world and work around us, in the tightest of spaces, we find enormous creativity and the wonderful creators who know that meaning unfolds in the minutiae. The many things in our work capable of creating the biggest emotional responses. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me, Jay Conzo, and of course, I also did all the sound design and music. Production support, as always, from Alana Evans. Special thanks to James T. Green for their creativity and generosity. If you share this show, and I hope you do, please remember to thank them too. If you had any thoughts or questions on this episode, this show, or my work overall, email me. I'm jay at unthinkablemedia.com, or you can tweet me at Jay Akunzo. I really love hearing from people who hear this show. One final thing, you can now get one-on-one coaching and consulting directly from me, working alongside you on the most important pieces of your brand or projects. This is through a blend of live one-on-one calls and private messaging together. It's like having me in your back pocket as a creativity consultant, and it's a new service I'm offering to my audience. Visit jayaconzo.com and click coaching at the top to learn more about this eight-week offering. It is not a course. It is not a group. It is me working with you directly. If you're not ready for that yet, no worries. While you're on the site, consider subscribing to my free newsletter. That's all at jayaconzo.com. We're back soon with a brand new episode, but until then, as always, keep making what matters. See ya. Special thanks to our sponsor, The Juice, which is kind of like the Spotify for sales and marketing content. You can create and browse playlists of resources from around the web built to elevate your career as a sales or marketing practitioner. See, the idea of B2B content used to be to teach other people. And then folks got obsessed with the algorithm and hyper growth and all these things that devolved the promise of content marketing into cheat codes, hacks, get their quick schemes. The Juice believes in putting the learning back in B2B content, and so they found the best ideas and resources from the best people in B2B and put it all in one place for you to easily access and find. 
you can sign up for free at thejuicehq.com. <laughs>